welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to You Serve Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to go deeper on religious freedom violations targeting Muslims living in Africa. Islam plays a significant role in Africa's past and present with at least 500 million Muslims living in Africa today. And given the important role that Islamic traditions and practice play for many Africans, we'll explore some of the specific challenges facing Muslims on the African continent. While many Muslims in Africa practice their faith in peace and harmony, across the region, some Muslim communities have been denied their right to freedom of religion or belief by both governments and non-state actors. We have with us today USERF policy analyst Madeline Velturo, who covers several African countries for USERF, to discuss the range of violations in recent years that a diversity of Muslim traditions have and continue to encounter to this day. Welcome back, Madeline. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Great. I'd like to uh, first start by asking you a bit about uh, why you chose to do research on violations against Muslims in Africa in particular, and, and what you think this lens brings to the uh, broader conversation on religious freedom in Africa and by extension around the world. Sure, definitely. I, I wanted to take a look at uh, violations against Muslims in Africa in part because some of these violations are taking place outside of the countries that USERF typically reports on because they're taking place outside of countries that tolerate or engage in severe violations of international religious freedom. And while that's nice that, that some of these countries aren't experiencing that, I, I didn't want the voices of victims of violations to get lost. It's actually part of um, a series of uh, kind of research I'm doing on vict- uh, with a victim-censored lens, looking at taking religious communities and putting them uh, front and center in the analysis and then, then looking at the challenges they face. I was particularly excited to, to um, do this research on, on Muslims in Africa because there's such a rich history of, of Islam in Africa, uh, Muslim, tra- Muslims traditions and practices. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I, uh, I'm well steeped in kind of Africanist policy. And I, I do sometimes think that gener- people can make generalizations um, that Islam was mainly imported to Africa, that there hasn't been evolution of Islamic thought within Africa. Um, or just, you know, make, make some generalizations that I've found in the work I've done with Yusuf. You know, there is a lot of diversity across Muslim belief and practice in Africa. And I really wanted to, to highlight that. So then can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that history that you referred to and the evolution of Islamic thought and thinking and practice in Africa uh, over generations? Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, Islam's presence in Africa began at, at the beginning, you know, in the seventh century, uh, Muhammad actually, you know, uh, suggested that some of his disciples who were who were facing persecution in in the Arabian Peninsula by, by pre-Islamic inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, you know, he suggested that they seek refuge across the Red Sea and in, in what in what is today Ethiopia. And um, so Africa became the first haven for Muslims in the first place Islam was practiced outside of the Arabian Peninsula. 
And since then, you know, there's been just a, an incredible free flow of thoughts and ideas between African Muslims and other centers of Muslim learning around the world. Uh, and actually much of this discourse, you know, has been captured in records and documents that are housed in some of the most prominent Muslim libraries in the world, in, in Fez, in Timbuktu, in Dar es Salaam. Um, and Africa is also home to, to many kind of historical Islamic scholars and thinkers that have shaped and involved tradition and practice. So I'm thinking of characters like uh, Amadou Bamba from Senegambia, who founded the Muridi School of Thought, and also Ahmad al-Tijani, um, who was Algerian um, and, and founded the Tijaniya uh, School of Thought. So as you say, there are millions, hundreds of millions of Muslims living in Africa. It actually comprises... Uh, more than 45% of the continent's estimated population. Um, African nations make up 26 of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation's 57 member states. Uh, at least 12 African countries have an establishment of common law and Islamic law in, in their legal systems. So this is um, a very kind of prominent religious tradition, tradition with lots of rich history and, and uh, theological and pr practical diversity in Africa. So now that we have the, the groundwork for, uh, you know, your thinking and the basis of the, the research, can you can you uh, outline for us some of the trends that you uncovered, uh, particularly regarding the, the kinds of religious freedom violations that uh, various Muslim communities uh, on the African continent uh, have been facing and continue to face uh, up, up to today? Of course, yes. Um, you know, we kind of found three buckets of, of violations that Muslims are facing in Africa, uh, religious freedom violations. And, and, you know, maybe to start with is, is focusing on violations that are committed by the state or are state sponsored. Um, you know, these typically take place in countries where governments closely moderate the practice of Islam. Um, so Egypt, Algeria, um, uh, parts of northern Nigeria. Um, and typically these violations manifest as blasphemy convictions and lengthy prison sentences or hefty fines um, for people who publicly interpret Islam differently than the state. But they can also include um, states refusing to register minority Muslim associations, which thereby effectively prohibits them from legally establishing places of worship in, in some countries. So these violations often affect Muslim minority communities, for example, Shia Muslims or Ahmadiyya Muslims, um, also uh, Quranist Muslims in Egypt, um, and, and also Kandaria and Tijaniya Muslims in Nigeria. And then you have kind of violations related to the politicization of religion and of Muslim identity in uh, secular conflicts or in political conflicts. This type of politicization of re religion affects people from many different faiths across Africa, but to focus for this uh, purpose on, on those affecting Muslims, you know, in some conflicts we have seen violent targeting of Muslims in the context of political violence where one side of the conflict is perceived to be associated with Islam or with the, the local Muslim community. So, for example, in Mozambique, we've seen state authorities um, target people who appear devoutly Muslim, uh, maybe who have a, have a beard or are wearing certain clothes in their campaign against uh, militant Salafi insurgents there. Uh, in Central African Republic, we have seen um, both government and rebel forces actually attack Muslim communities or mosques uh, in an attempt to kind of target a political dissident. We've seen uh, attacks on mosques in Cameroon's separatist crisis, also in Ethiopia's ongoing political crisis. Um, and it, in both cases, you know, targeting 
political actors, but obviously they have implications for the uh, worshipers who, who wanted to be able to worship there in peace that day. This kind of leads into the third category, which is just across the continent, we see a, a, a fair number of attacks on mosques and not all of them are taking place in this political, in political crises. Um, you know, and many of them are being conducted by non-state actors. Uh, many of these are actually, you know, conducted by militant Islamist or Salafi groups um, that are seeking to, uh, to take, that are seeking to take out, uh, sorry, I can't think of the word I'm, thinking, I'm looking for, sorry. You know, some of these are conducted by militant Islamist uh, or Salafi groups that seek to enforce their interpretation of Islam on others. We've seen attacks on mosques and abduction of religious leaders by Islamic State affiliates in Lake Chad Basin region in Northern Nigeria and Northern Cameroon. We've seen these attacks across the Sahel region of West Africa, um, where we have uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates and Islamic State affiliates operating there. We've had suicide bombers attack mosques in, in Somalia, um, where the jihadist group Al-Shabaab is, is a prominent actor. And in Mozambique as well, we've had um, members of the Salafi militant insurgent group disrupt prayers in mosques, um, threaten the lives of local Islamic leaders. We've also seen an interestingly several attacks on mosques in recent years in South Africa. Um, and it's a little less clear who the perpetrators of these are. Um, you know, South Africa is not uh, a landscape that has a strong um, militant Islamist kind of group like the others, uh, but it's possible that there are one or two um, people with extreme views who have, who have committed these attacks, or um, it could also be kind of more of an Islamophobic um, motivation. So, so these are kind of the three buckets of violations we see. You know, you touched on a range of countries in different parts of the continent. Um, what, what did you find in terms of, was there any uh, particular differences in uh, the, uh, the plight of Muslims in some of the North African countries that are typically associated with the, the Middle East and, you know, region uh, versus, you know, those in sub-Saharan Africa? Did you, did you find anything different there and how, how uh, the treatment of uh, the communities are? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it is um, actually rare to include North African countries in an analysis like this. Often people stop at the Sahara. Um, I, I found that distinction sometimes to, to be a bit arbitrary and, and a bit confusing. I, I decided to draw the distinction geopolitically and just study all countries that were a part of the African Union, which includes all North African countries as well. Um, I... You know, I, I don't know that I saw too, too much of a difference. A lot of the threats were the same. The so so Egypt and Algeria are two countries where you see um, some you see a fair amount of state sanctioned uh, violations against Muslims, but you also see those in Nigeria, right, which is south of the Sahara. And so, you know, with those three being the main culprits, I don't. I don't know that there's enough there to really draw too much of a distinction. And then you have Tunisia and Morocco also in North Africa, where we've not had, um, you know, reports of, of the implementation of blasphemy laws um, or restrictions on, on registration of churches and things like this. So I don't, um, and we have seen jihadist attacks on mosques in Egypt and Algeria, although 
the most recent of those was in early 2019. So it's been a little while, maybe that's changing. Um, but in general, I think a lot of Muslims across the continent, including North Africa, or, or a lot of Muslim communities that are at risk of, of their religious freedom being violated, um, kind of face some of the same threats, whether they're north of or south of the Sahara. Yeah, very interesting because, you know, I think there are some of these smaller groups. You mentioned the Ahmadiyya uh, community in some of the countries like Algeria, where they face some uh, real issues. But in other African countries, you know, they thrive in society. Um, so I guess it can it certainly can vary. But, uh, you know, uh, as far as government versus uh, non-governmental activity, uh, that also uh, you know differs country to country. I guess, you know, considering these uh uh, the fact that these violations span many countries in different contexts, as you've been talking about. Are there any, uh, you know, ideas that come out of this? What can U.S. policymakers community do uh, to, uh, you know, urge uh, governments uh, to protect the rights of uh, Muslim communities that are being uh, repressed either by governments or when governments are not uh, doing enough to prevent non-state actors uh, from, from uh, attacks. Uh, you mentioned several countries in very different contexts. Um, are there any best practices or learnings here? Because uh, we, we fully know that, uh, uh, that, it, that it varies based on bilateral relations with uh, particular countries, but but perhaps there were some things that rose to the top regarding uh, U.S. policy and, and more broadly. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think um, just in general, having a multi-pronged approach in, in U.S. policy to advance the decriminalization of blasphemy laws and eventually repeal blasphemy laws across Africa seems like a, a, like a really important facet of this work, um, especially to address the state-sanctioned violations. And, and it's interesting you mentioned some of the, you know, kind of Muslim majority countries in Africa where we don't see these issues. I actually think they could be some really powerful partners outside of kind of what we traditionally think of as maybe like-minded or allied governments like the Dutch and the Germans. But if you think about like Senegal or Gambia or Sudan just repealed their blasphemy laws. Um, I, I do think that um, partnering with uh, with countries in the region who have similar interests in promoting religious freedom across the region uh, as the U.S. could be a really powerful way to start kind of picking away at some of the foundation of these blasphemy laws uh, involving the African Union, just in general involving uh, African civil society. Um, there's a lot of uh, respect for religious diversity, diversity of thought, um, freedom of thought across Africa. And I think there could be really, there's a lot of powerful allies to be mobilized. Um, maybe a second thought, uh, you know, a little more straightforward is just to incorporate interfaith tolerance programming into U.S. policy in countries experiencing political conflict, just to, you know, ensure that, um, to try and combat the politicization of religion in those crises. Um, and of course, you know, whatever the U.S. can do to bolster efforts to protect houses of worship, especially mosques in this case, especially during seasons of, of particular significance like Ramadan or celebrations during Eid. Um, these are the kind of strategies that the U.S. can work with governments on instead of against governments, especially governments, especially in, in, in countries where, um, you know, it's more kind of neglect by the government uh, for for not 
protecting religious freedom of its citizens, but it, you know, maybe they would do better if they could or need a little bit of incentive to prioritize this among the plethora of, of challenges they face. Um, so providing support for the protection of houses of worship and, and kind of taking that seasonal approach and um, can be really effective. A lot of the attacks that we've seen on mosques did happen during, uh, during Ramadan or during Eid celebrations. Well, we'll have to leave it right here. Obviously, there's a lot more we could go into in terms of your research, but we're going to see more of that soon enough. Uh, I want to thank uh, USERF policy analyst Malin Velturo for sharing her insights and a, and a glimpse into her uh, research on the plight of Muslim communities uh, in Africa. You can find USERF's work on religious freedom conditions in several African countries and our recommendations for U.S. policy on our website at www.us. CIRF.gov. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U S C I R F.gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.